0: We're commonly talked about as being like a clickbait factory and things like that. We're actually kind of anti-clickbait at BuzzFeed and I'd seen that there was this investigation in 2008 and they cleared themselves. Like I said, I thought, I just don't believe that. I mean, I just don't believe there was no evidence. So there's got to have been some kind of a cover up here. So I said, like, wow, you were were involved in the Davidenko investigation. And he said, yeah, and like, that was a complete whitewash by the way. It was a really weighty, long, demanding, challenging piece of work for people to read. But actually it turned out that readers were willing to spend upwards of half an hour reading it and they wanted to share it.
1: Hi, I'm Kate Golden at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. Why are the cat people doing investigations? At the very organization that often takes the blame for dumbing down the entire internet, and all of us with it, BuzzFeed has invested in serious investigative reporting. Last year it paid off, as BuzzFeed and the BBC jointly revealed that there was evidence of match fixing in professional tennis at elite levels and that the body that was supposed to police that sort of thing knew and had done next to nothing about it. This work took data analysis, it took shoe leather, and it took some major moxie. We brought the co-author of that report, BuzzFeed UK's investigations editor, Heidi Blake, to give us the inside story of that project and to talk about how it fits into BuzzFeed's business model. She gave a keynote speech at Storiology, our 2016 journalism festival. And then she answered questions from an equally formidable Aussie investigative reporter, Caro Meldrum-Hanna of ABC's Four Corners. She won the Gold Walkley last year for her team's investigation of animal cruelty in greyhound racing. This is a rare treat, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Here goes.
0: Hi. um, Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, and so, uh, I, I flew in from London um, to talk to you guys about investigative journalism in a digital age. And I have to say, um, having flown in from midsummer in London, I think it's so cute that you guys think this is a cold morning. <laughs> like, this is like, this is balmy. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really fantastic to be here. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about um, investigations at BuzzFeed. Um, I joined um, from the Sunday Times Insight team, which is the kind of oldest and most established investigations team um, on Fleet Street in London. And there were all of two people on it when I worked there. And, um, and I now work at BuzzFeed on the investigations team here on a global team of 20. Um, and so I'm really, really excited to talk about how... Digital journalism and social news is creating a whole new space for the kind of investigative work that so many of us here love doing. Um, It's a great surprise to me that there is this wonderful new future opening up for the work that we do. Um, And so I'll tell you a little bit about BuzzFeed um, and then talk to you about uh, one of our biggest investigations so far. Um, So BuzzFeed is, um, we consider ourselves to be a cross-platform global network for news and entertainment. which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, basically what that means is that our content exists across multiple different platforms. We create content specifically for social networks like Snapchat or Facebook, um, as well as uh, driving people back to our our own .com as well. Um, We have a really huge audience um, of 200 million unique users um, around the world. 90 million of those are outside the US, um, and we're getting 7 billion content views a month at this point. Um, We have hundreds of journalists around the planet, um, and we're producing content in multiple languages now, which is really, really exciting. Um, And we have 11 international editions, including BuzzFeed Australia, um, which you guys will all be familiar with, and it's doing incredible work over here. Um, So that's who we are, and who are our readers? The really, really exciting thing for me about uh, being at BuzzFeed is that our readers are young. They're really young. Um, We reach um, more than 60% of the world's millennials. So we're talking to people who are under 35, and that's a really hard demographic to reach, especially with serious news and investigative journalism. Um, And so it's exciting to be talking to to that audience. Um, And one in five of the articles shared by all millennials online originate from BuzzFeed. And we know that... Millennials tend to be kind of glued to their mobiles. They check them within moments of waking up, and so more than 70% of our content is read on mobile, and about 75% comes in from social networks. So what we're trying to do is find ways of reaching those young people on their mobiles first thing in the morning when they wake up and telling them stories that they find compelling enough to spend a long time reading. That's the kind of challenge of of the job that we're doing. Um, But so to address a big question that you guys have probably asked me here to answer. I know that you know us for our, our cat gifts and our lists and quizzes and all of those sorts of things. Um, why are we doing investigations at BuzzFeed? Um, we are not commonly associated with that kind of work, uh, particularly outside the uh, the US and the UK where we've we've begun to build up that present. Um, but it's actually a really, really core cool part of what we're doing and what our, our mission is all about. So BuzzFeed is genuinely really, really committed to building a defining media organisation for for this century. Um, And that's about making news which has an impact as much as it's about building a huge audience. Uh, Jonah Peressi, who is our, our founder and our owner, talks about how obviously entertainment has always been bigger business than news. So obviously... The, the quizzes and the, the list of cat gifts and all of those other things that we do and you know we have some fantastic entertainment content which is hilarious and relevant to our audience and wonderful but actually that's always going to be that's always going to get the huge audience but what we're trying to do as well is to break news that really shapes the conversation and has the power to, to change the world for the better um, and we're deadly serious about doing that and also actually the way that we measure our success is is not just about clicks we're commonly Talked about as being like a clickbait factory and things like that. We're actually kind of anti-clickbait at BuzzFeed because we're not very interested in how many people click on our stories. What we're interested in is how many people share those stories because that tells us that they found this a satisfying reading experience. And people share content that they find moving. That's, that's what drives people to share. And that's about whether they're shocked or angry or they feel empathy as well as finding something really funny um, or finding something really, really entertaining. They experience emotions that they want their friends to experience, and that's why they share. And so actually, that's a real sweet spot for investigative journalism, you know, which, which so often, like as we saw with Kyra's incredible investigation into Don Dale, with the amazing leak of the Nowry files, these are incredibly emotive subjects which totally have the power to make people want to share um, and to drive a conversation through social channels. Um, and to my total delight and real surprise, actually having joined BuzzFeed, what we found is that the stories that share best in terms of news are either the kind of quick hits, which are a scoop where we've broken a story and we've got it out there first, or they're stories which are really deep and definitive and long. So the stuff that shares best for us is between three and 10,000 words. Um, those stories travel really, really well. Um, and then stories that are, that are under 2,000 words. And then in the middle, there's a kind of valley of death where people don't read stories which are kind of mid-ranking and in between. But they will read things which are really long and really, really deep. Um, And so the Tennis Racket Investigation, which I'll go on to talk to you about, was a 9,000-word story. Um, It was a really weighty, long, demanding, challenging piece of work for people to read. But actually, it turned out that readers were willing to spend upwards of half an hour reading it, or longer they were, and and they they wanted to share it. So this is a kind of early screen grab of the social um, sharing statistics on that story, the the first story that we broke on that subject, um, which went on to be read by, by millions of people. Um, and you can see that the, the red there is the, the number of people who read it through social sharing. So the blue is the kind of seed views, the people who picked it up on one of our platforms. And then we basically kind of tripled the readership of that story because people wanted to share it and talk about it. Um, and that's a 9,000-word investigation. So for me, that was really, really incredibly heartening to see. Um, and so because, um, because these stories share well and because BuzzFeed does want to try to change things and... and, and produce stories which have an impact. We're building a global investigations team. Um, We have 20 journalists working in in cities across America. We have a fantastic journalist here in Melbourne, Christine Keneally, who's working on a really exciting project. Um, And I run a team of four reporters in London. um, And we're all focused on blowing up huge stories which have potentially have global impact. Um, And we have wonderful freedom at BuzzFeed. Um, We work for Mark Sheafs, who is a fantastic Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who gives us great freedom to spend as long as we need to working on stories that matter, sometimes more than a year, which is a luxury that I've never had um, at any other paper I've worked for, Um, and is another really, really exciting thing about being here. And so... Having joined BuzzFeed from the Sunday Times in uh, in March last year, one of the first investigations that um, I got involved in was our investigation into tennis, um, and it was exciting because this was a transatlantic reporting partnership with a with a fantastic reporter in in the US um, who was on our data team, and it was a real combination of technological wizardry uh, of the sort that I've never you know I've never been able to work with that kind of. Uh, that kind of capability at any other paper um, and just kind of old-fashioned shoe-leather journalism of the sort that i'm much more used to doing at places like the sunday times so i'll introduce you to my colleague this is john um he is a genius um so he's a data reporter on our investigations team in new york um and he devised an algorithm which was able to detect tennis matches which looked like they had been rigged by corrupt gambling syndicates and i'll explain to you how he did that but it was his Algorithm and his data analysis, which triggered this whole investigation. So what John did was he he actually read a statistics journal, which contained an article by a U.S. academic um, exploring betting patterns on sports matches um, and examining the way that you could detect sometimes suspicious betting activity when you could see big shifts in the odds on a particular outcome. And so John wanted to find out more about this, and he's really he's a big tennis nut. So he scraped the opening and closing odds on 26,000 tennis matches going back to 2009. Um, And then he devised an algorithm which was able to detect matches where the odds had shifted by more than 10% against a particular player, which looked like, people had come in and placed very heavy bets on that player to lose that match. So how did they, why did they think that player was going to lose that match? Why were they so certain that they placed such huge bets on that outcome that they managed to shift the odds by 10%? That's an extraordinary event. Um, and so his algorithm weeded out all of the matches, and there were hundreds and hundreds of matches where this had happened. And then he identified that there were 39 players on the tour who had repeatedly lost matches where the odds had moved by more than 10%. Um, and so he then ran millions of computer simulations per player to figure out what were the chances that those players, given their relative capabilities, their positions in the rankings, any kind of injuries, anything like that, what were the chances that they could have lost all of those matches just by chance after the odds had shifted against them in that way. And then John did something that I don't really understand, if I'm completely honest. He, uh, <laughs> I, I have to kind of go around and try to explain to people the, the analysis that John did, and I'm really not a numbers person, so this is a challenge for me. But John applied uh, a test called the Bonferroni correction. This is Bonferroni here on the uh, on the left. Um, he's another genius, I think. And uh, and basically, this is a way of determining the statistical significance of a data set or a, a set of results. Um, and it involves a very complex equation, which I'm not going to attempt to unpick for you. But in in preparing for this and uh, and trying to kind of understand what John did when he applied the Bonferroni correction, I found myself googling things like, what is the Bonferroni correction, Bonferroni correction for dummies, like, guide to the Bonferroni correction, and um, I found this. Um, So basically, I... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I like it. Um, It can stay. So um, we'll skip over that, but basically... John identified that of those 39 players, there were four who passed a Bonferroni test of significance. So the chances of their losing all of the matches that they'd lost after the odds shifted like that were less than one in a 1,000. There was was basically a less than one in a 1,000 chance that those players hadn't rigged the outcome of those matches. And then in another 11 cases, there were players who didn't quite meet the Bonferroni test, whatever that is, But there was a less than 5% chance that those players could have lost all of the matches that they lost through fair play alone. And that meant there were a total of 15 players on the tour who looked really suspicious. Like, these guys were repeatedly playing in matches where the outcomes were not what they ought to have been, um, and the odds were shifting hugely. And so, like, where do you go from there? We've got this list of 15 names. And this was kind of where I came on board. Um, I came into BuzzFeed having just spent... Years working on um, a big investigation into corruption in football and so um, I was kind of a natural person to get involved with with this investigation and um, and so we sat down with those names and we started to look at them and try to figure out like how are we gonna prove any of this we've got this data set which really suggests there's something hugely suspicious happening but we can't just like publish that you know we need some evidence we need something else Um, and what I really wanted to know was well hang on a minute if there are these 15 guys fixing these matches like these odds that John that John scraped were public this was public information so surely someone else has noticed these huge shifts in the odds like what are the world tennis authorities actually doing about this people must have noticed this is happening and so we started to really read deeply into it and try to find out what the kind of history of the relationship between the tennis authorities and the problem of gambling corruption was and what we found was that really the first big match fixing scandal to engulf world tennis had taken place in 2007. And it was all really associated with the growth of online gambling and the, uh, the easy availability of, you know, of sites where you could place bets, hundreds and hundreds of sites all over the internet on sports matches. And you can place bets on very specific parts of those matches, you know, on a particular set, on a particular game. Um, and it just kind of was like a proliferation of ways in which corrupt gamblers could potentially try to... Uh, make money out of inside information that they might have had on the on the outcome of uh, a match. And so what had happened in 2007 was that these two players, Nikolai Davidenko, who was the world number four at the time, and a Russian player, and an Argentine player called uh, Martin Versailles-Aguello, had played a match in Sopot in Poland. And during that match, just before play began, a huge amount of money had flooded into the market, betting on Davidenko to lose the match. And that was really strange, because Davidenko was the world number four, and his opponent was the world number 87, and Davidenko was the reigning champion at that tournament, so he should have been hugely the favourite to win that match. Yet, somehow, there were these nine accounts in Russia who were placing enormous bets of millions on Davidenko to lose, so like, what did they know that everybody else didn't? Why did they think he was going to lose? And then, lo and behold, Davidenko, he won the first set, and then he retired injured in the second set, and so all of those accounts would have made a huge amount of money, but for the fact that Betfair, where the bets had been placed at an online betting exchange, thought that the betting was so suspicious that they voided the whole market and refused to pay out on any of those bets. So, this is an example of the kind of odds movement that John's analysis uh, detected. You can see here that this is that, that black line there is where investigators who later came in to look at this match thought that the odds should have been on the the match. And you can see what happened. The orange line there is what happened to the odds on Davidenko to win after the Russian money started to come in. The bets were so heavy that the odds swung massively against Davidenko. And that's exactly the, the kind of movement that John's algorithm detected. And so what had happened then was that World Tennis had been forced to commission a big investigation after Betfair avoided this market. they brought in a team of investigators to look at what had happened in SOPOP. Um, and at the same time, two former Scotland Yard detectives came in to Im- conduct a wider review of integrity in the sport as a whole. And yet, at the end of that investigation, the tennis authorities came out and said there was no evidence at all uh, of any, any rule-breaking by either of the players at SOPOP, um, and really no evidence of, of corruption in the sport more widely. That seemed kind of strange to us because John's algorithm went back to 2009. This investigation concluded in 2008. We could see from John's analysis there were serious grounds to suspect corruption in tennis. So why had this huge year-long investigation not found anything at all to report back on? Um, It had recommended the formation of of a tennis integrity unit which is a self-governing body um, that sits within the International Tennis Federation and which is there to preside over the integrity of the sport and ostensibly to take a zero-tolerance approach to gambling corruption. Um, but, uh, but, you know, straight after that unit was formed, Bill Babcock, who is a senior figure at the ITF, had come out and declared tennis clean, healthy, and free of corruption after a year-long investigation. Uh, I've said this before, I'll say it again, but, like, any time a massive global organization in particular sporting organization at the center of like a huge multi-billion dollar industry investigates itself and says yeah there's no problem here like everything's absolutely fine I kind of smell a rat Um, so I thought okay right I I don't believe they didn't find anything because there's clearly a problem here and there's a team of investigators out there in the world who spent a year working on this I wonder how they feel about the outcome and also I'd really like to see you know there's got to be paperwork right There's there's an investigation there where are all those documents, and what did uh, what did the tennis authorities do with them? And so now we kind of had some idea of how we might begin reporting this out. And so we went about sourcing up. Um, we got to about twenty sources within the gambling industry, within within police forces around the world that were dealing with uh, with sports corruption, um, sporting integrity experts, and people within world tennis as well. And everybody that we spoke to, everyone, apart from the head of the tennis integrity unit, everybody told us that there was a huge problem with match fixing in tennis and that the world tennis authorities were not doing anything to confront it. And... Through those source relationships, we managed to get to people from right within the World Tennis Authorities who gave us a big cache of documents, um, including those files from that investigation back in 2008, um, and a whole load of other documents which showed that the World Tennis Authorities had ignored repeated warnings about match fixing by individual players, many of whom had been flagged up by John's algorithm, um, and that all of this had been ignored. So... The fixing files showed us that actually back in 2008, those ATP investigators had urged a full disciplinary investigation into 28 players who their investigation had found to be suspicious. It looked like they were fixing matches. It looked like they were connected to big Italian and Russian gambling syndicates who were making huge amounts of money betting on their matches. One player, you remember Martin Versailles Aguello, the Argentine player in the Sopot match, he'd exchanged 82 text messages with the head of one of those Sicilian gambling syndicates who'd made hundreds of thousands of dollars betting on his matches, and he'd been exchanging messages beforehand about the outcome, and still the World Tennis Authorities, even though they had all of those text messages, didn't do anything about it and allowed him to continue playing. And in the years since that investigation, the authorities have been warned about 70 players, um, time and time again, and there were 16 names that kept coming up, and they were all players from a high level of the game. They'd all been in the top 50. Some of them were still playing at a very high level, and they'd been flagged again and again, and absolutely nothing had been done about it. And World Tennis had come out and said, there's no evidence of corruption. So, like, what was going on here? And eight of the players at the time that we we saw these documents were just about to begin competing in the Australian Open um, here in in Melbourne um, in January. So... We wanted to know what the investigators who'd conducted all of that work had to say and we managed to get to them and speak to them. This is um, Mark Phillips, um, one of the ATP match fixing investigators from that, that SOPOT investigation. He lives uh, nearby here in Sydney. And um, he told us that the world tennis authorities on the basis of the evidence that they were given by that probe could have got rid of a corrupt network of players within the sport um, and cleaned the whole sport out and they, they missed the opportunity because they decided to do nothing with the evidence. And then we got to one of the Scotland Yard detectives who conducted the sweeping review of integrity in the game that recommended the formation of the tennis integrity unit. And what he told us was that his recommendation had actually been they needed to make sure that the tennis integrity unit had someone to perform a betting analysis ongoing on the markets, exactly what John had done to kick off this investigation. They needed to be looking out for suspicious odds movements and then proactively going out and investigating the players who were repeatedly performing in those kind of matches. And they decided not to appoint anyone to do that. They were just sitting there, kind of twiddling their thumbs, waiting for someone to kind of blow the whistle or for some evidence to come to them. But they weren't proactively monitoring the market. And so he said that actually the tennis Integrity Unit was just a plastic solution. It was like a fig leaf and they weren't really doing anything. Uh, They should have been doing exactly what John did. And so we broke the story. um, We published it on the eve of the Australian Open. Um, And it, it really... It really hit hard, it caused a big impact. Um, Andy Murray, who is the British number one, one of the top four players in the world, tweeted the story. Uh, He was one of the first people to tweet it, very excitingly. Novak Djokovic came out and and talked about how he'd been offered 200 grand to fix a match, Roger Roger Federer talked about it, the British Prime Minister David Cameron came out on the first day after the story was published and demanded an urgent investigation, MPs in the House of Commons in the UK announced a parliamentary inquiry um, and ultimately although they, they tried to block it as much as they could to begin with, the World Tennis Authorities were forced to announce a QC-led investigation, um, which is still ongoing, into not just the problem of of corruption within the sport, but also how the authorities have handled it and why the evidence all appears to have been ignored. Um, And what was really exciting for me um, about doing this story at BuzzFeed was that BuzzFeed is a global platform. We have offices all around the world. Um, We publish in, in multiple languages. And so we were able to project this story really globally uh, we had, obviously, reporters both in the UK and in the US who carried out the investigation. We also had the fantastic BuzzFeed Australia team who were sending out reporters to the open and driving the story forward really aggressively here to keep the narrative going. Um, we had people running our live blog out of San Francisco. You know, we had the story being pursued by reporters in France and Japan. We had it translated in five languages. And that really helped the story not only just go viral and reach millions of readers, but actually also reach a wider audience through other media because it was picked up by thousands of global media outlets as well um, and uh, and trended at number one um, as a Google News story. So that was really fantastically exciting. And then the other thing that was really exciting was that we partnered with the BBC on this story. Um, so BBC obviously being our hugely established, um, world-famous public broadcaster, um, and we, we teamed up with them. They'd spent some, a long time investigating match fixing in tennis as well, and we were able to pool our reporting resources. Um, we gave each other mutual credit throughout, and that really helped us both to project the story globally. And what it meant for us was that we, got, we were able to project our reporting you know, across their platforms and reach their older, much more established audience and that they were, crucially for them, able to talk to our audience of under 35s um, who are a really tough demographic for them to reach. Um, And so it was really fantastically beneficial. We doubled up our reporting power and it meant that afterwards we got twice the tips. You know, we, they, they got all sorts of tips coming into their BBC newsroom, we got tips coming into us and we've continued reporting the story out together. We've had a whole series of, of, of stories since about fixing in tennis and we're continuing to work together, um, which has also been really, really exciting. And so what we learned from all of that um, is, what the, actually for me I think a big learning point was that data is an amazing source you know it doesn't have to be that a a data-driven investigation begins and ends on the spreadsheet Um, you can you can take what an algorithm tells you or what a data analysis tells you and then you can get right at the story behind those numbers and that's because basically stories are ultimately always about people however data-driven they might be there's always people behind those numbers and so because of that there's not any substitute once you've got the data for just getting out there and actually finding the people who can explain to you what the numbers are pointing you at. Um, So John's algorithm was an amazing tipster and it told us there's a problem with these 15 players and it told us where to go and start digging and we then went out into the world and knocked on doors and found people, picked up the phone and developed sources. And so for me it was so fantastic to see how powerful a combination it could be to take some of that technological like, wizardry that BuzzFeed is so amazing at, and then combine it with conventional shoe-leather reporting and just kind of forensic journalism to put the two together and and to see the power that that had. Our stories travelled a lot further because we collaborated with the BBC. Um, And really, I think for me, most thrillingly of all, people shared the story, and our young readers spent a long time reading it, and they shared it with their friends, and it reached millions of them, and they cared about it, they engaged with it. Um, And so... People are, there's, there's a really big audience out there for serious long form investigative journalism in the social age and that for me is, is enormously exciting and uh, so that is why the cat people are doing investigations. <laughs> um. <Yeah. laughs> Thanks. Right, I'm just gonna, you will all be like hypnotized by that. I oh, know it's good, it's gone, otherwise like, <laughs> you don't go to sleep. Hello everyone. Should we sit? Yeah, should we sit here? Cool. Yeah, yeah, great. Still got a half eaten bagel over here. I know, you haven't even touched no. it. <laughs>
2: Look, that was fantastic. And I think what is so exciting for me, and I think the buzzword today is exciting, exciting, is that here now we have Heidi and you have worked on, you've been working on BuzzFeed, which is a relatively new player, certainly with investigative journalism. Um, and on a completely different platform, and myself, my name's Caro, hi, I'm from Four Corners, and we're approaching our 55th a year on air. So we're a, we're a big old beast using a lot of old traditional techniques. And I think Four Corners, we, well, I know we would kill to have the audience and the readership, the millennials that Buzzfeed does. So I think it's so exciting that both young women working on completely different platforms and programs, but producing great investigative journalism. Absolutely. Now, the first thing, I'm allowed to ask a few questions before I hand over to the audience. And what is, I immediately thought I must say when I read and obviously just totally was absorbed by Tennis Racket, when it broke, was why the decision to not name the players
0: That is the million dollar question. And when I say million dollar, I mean million dollar lawsuits. Um, Mm. (laughs) um, So that was was obviously a tough call. Um, I think Mm. basically what we really felt at the end of the investigation was that it's very difficult to prove that anybody's fixed a match unless you can get into their bank account or you can get into their their phone records or their computer records and actually prove not only that they lost a match where people had placed very heavy bets on them and it looked like, you know, as with Nikolai Davidenko, it looked like Those Russian accounts knew he was gonna lose that match, but did he tell them that? Did he deliberately lose the match? How did they find out? It's really hard to prove it. You can certainly say there's an awful lot of suspicion around that match, but what you need to do is get into his his bank account. Did anybody pay him? Did anybody, you know, did he tell anyone? Um, And the World Tennis Authorities have the power to do that. They can go into people's bank accounts, they can go into computer logs, internet records, phone records, all of those things, Um, if they have any suspicion of fixing. And yet they haven't done that. So with any of the players that were flagged by that investigation in 2008, they admitted to us, they'd closed the file, they hadn't investigated any of them at all. Um, And so what we really felt was we can't, we don't have powers of subpoena, we don't have powers to demand that they hand over their bank accounts to us, but the tennis authorities do. And so we really wanted to focus the pressure on World Tennis and say to them, you should be investigating these people, you know who they are, you have all of these documents, why aren't you doing anything about it? So to shake
2: home the responsibility to the regulator.
0: Yeah, to say to them, you know, because there's a, there's a huge profit motive for a global sports body to try to keep any evidence of corruption under wraps, yeah, and of course. what we're trying to do is to say, listen, you're supposed to be there to police the sport and to keep it clean, and why are you not investigating when you're saying to the world that you have an integrity unit, what are you actually doing? And so that was, that was a, bit, a big part of, of our thinking. So if you had 15 names, as we've just heard, 15 names that
2: it, it were highly suspicious it was what the odds were, what, one in a 1,000, that everything was above board. Did you approach, say, those 15 individuals and say, hey, this is what we've discovered, this is what we think? Did you get to that point?
0: We did. We reached out to a lot of the players and, um, and asked, them, um, asked them to talk about whether they had ever been, had any contact with any gamblers or anything like that. Um, unsurprisingly, most of them didn't want to talk to us. Those that did said... No, bugger off, you know, so we, we, um, and we, we tried, obviously, all sorts of things to reach out to people around them who might know, but, um, but it's you know it's it's a very tough thing to prove um, in terms of any individual person unless you have their unless you have the records. So we did out Martin Vasaio Greo as having exchanged text messages with a gambler. We talked about Davidenko because there was a lot of evidence um, around him which raised some serious questions. We've named a couple of Italian players who were implicated in uh, in fixing in Italy. Um, and we will continue to report the story out and to look for evidence around individuals. But really, for us, the kind of central narrative is around the failure of, of governance um, and the, yeah, the, the unwillingness of the sport to clean up its act.
2: Now, there's every, a point in every investigation where you know that you're onto a really big story, if you're lucky enough to, to, to have one. Um, when did you know that this was just enormous?
0: Well, so I... Once I'd sort of read into it and I'd seen that there was this investigation in 2008, then they cleared themselves. Like I said, I thought I just don't believe that. I mean, I just don't believe there was no evidence. So there's got to have been some kind of a cover-up here. Um, and it was actually I was I was here in in Melbourne last year for. Um, uh, Police conference on sporting integrity, um, run by the Victoria Police Sporting Integrity Department, and um, I was I was meaning to talk to these investigators from SOPOT and I was just wandering around the conference afterwards. I'd been talking about FIFA, um, and I bumped into Mark Phillips. He's on one of those slides, um, and we were just chatting, and uh, and he said, "Oh, you know, I, yeah, I've done some work for World Tennis because I was asking everyone I spoke to, you know, what do you think about match fixing in tennis?" Um, and basically, it turned out he was one of the investigators who'd been on that team. Mm. So I said. Like, wow, you were, you were involved in the Davidenko investigation. And he said, yeah. And, like, that was a complete whitewash, by the way. Um, and I kind of thought, like, okay, right. So the theory is kind of seeming correct. And so I, like, dragged him into a side room and got us a couple of beers and said, like, just tell me everything. And he was really angry. That was the thing, you know. It's so often the way that, like, once you tap into something like this, you find people who have just been, like, fuming for years, you know, and just waiting for someone to go and find them and ask them the question. And no one really had. Um, so, yeah, so I talked to him a lot. He, t- he gave me that quote right then and there about we gave them everything tied up with a nice pink ribbon on top and they took no action. Yeah. And so then I thought, okay, right, we need to go find those reports. Um, and, and that was when I thought that if we can get those documents, we're really onto something big.
2: Yes, and how hard was that, getting those documents?
0: That was, you know, as always, that was the hard bit. I mean, because everyone was obviously very nervous about talking to us um, and mm. we, you know, we had to... Keep on, you know, going further and further, and trying to meet more people, and trying to find the people who actually still had the documents or had and protect of the, documents. the
2: sources of those documents, and
0: obviously protect the sources, which was really, you know, which is difficult. There were mm. certain people who maybe had them, but it would have been so obvious yep. if they'd handed them over that we had to try find another way and somebody else who might have them. And ultimately, we got some people from, you know, from inside the sport who were able to help us. Um, and, you know, then it was a case of really spending a very long time sort of developing trust, getting to know them, talking to them more and more and, um, yeah, and ultimately kind of persuading them that this was a global cover-up and that if they had the power to lift the lid on it, that really that was the morally upright thing to do in that situation. Mm. And so ultimately um, they were willing to share the documents with us.
2: One last question before I
0: hand over. Timing,
2: um, the timing of when to drop a story is sometimes in your power to control as a journalist, other times it is not and you're working to a schedule and you meet a deadline or you meet an air date and that is it, there is no negotiation. Interestingly enough, Four Corners has just very recently in the last 24 hours been accused of uh, uh, running the Don Dale uh, investigation uh, in order to help a certain political party because the election is coming up in the territory, which is absolutely false and outrageous. That cannot happen and would not happen at the ABC and I certainly would never allow that to happen, Uh, a very desperate attempt by a man who's heading out in the territory. But um, in terms of your investigation with tennis racket, dropping that at the time of the Australian Open, was that a deliberate, you know, that was a plan because if so that was just super smart because it just got so much attention. Because the, everybody was watching tennis then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a deliberate uh, decision. And I mean, I. There's, there's nothing cynical about that because actually what you're trying to do with any investigation is you know you believe this is important and you want the maximum number of people to hear about it um, yeah. and so obviously you want to do that at a moment when the eyes of the world are on mm. the sport.
2: Because so many great stories get lost, don't exactly. you
0: think? Absolutely and it's great really, really sad when you see a wonderful story, it happens all the time, yeah. just kind of sinking under mm. the weight of you know the other, the rest of the news agenda. So you know, like with FIFA, we launched that the night before the World Cup began yep. um, in Brazil and with this we felt like especially given that ace of the players really at the centre of the suspicion were about to start playing mm. in the Australian Open, we felt like this is a really um, kind of apt moment to run that story.
2: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I think questions from the audience, I'm sure there are so many here. We have a hand here, a couple of hands in the middle, we'll just wait for the mic.
0: I'm going to ask one question while you guys oh, yeah. get your questions and put your hands up, and the the team will come come through to you guys. I wanted to ask this of both of you. Um, <coughs> Laurie o- Laurie Oakes calls them the anti journalists, the the people who work in media departments in in um, as press secretaries and and are often um, the gatekeepers between the kind of people who you guys want to talk to, and and uh, and yourselves. So. I wanted to ask both of you, and, and looking at the tennis investigation first, Heidi. You, you know, you mentioned speaking to working detectives and people who were working, essentially government officials. Yeah. How did you get around? Uh, how do you and how do you, Caro, get around uh, uh, media units, uh, especially when people are so worried about their digital footprint, emailing documents, texting with you? All of that that information is is pretty easily available to a government department who's looking for revenge. It's, I mean, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, it's actually, it's a huge problem in the UK, particularly post the phone hacking scandal mm. um, and the scandal of the kind of relationship between the news of the world and, and the police in the UK. Um, it's almost impossible to talk to a serving police officer now um, or to a government official. Um, I actually find it so much easier working abroad and talking to government officials overseas um, than I do in the UK. But I think in generally the, the thing to do is to, try to put yourself in situations um, where they're going to be naturally and then just strike up a natural conversation with them, build a bit of a relationship that way and then ask them a the question rather than like, obviously if you if you just ring them up out of the blue, they're just going to freak out and tell you to talk to the press office. But if you're say at a you know, sporting integrity event or at a conference or something like that, and you're both there and you kind of manage to talk to people on the sidelines or even just, you know, you know, the pub where they go drinking, you go and hang around there and just kind of strike up an actual conversation. I generally find that's the best way to, to build relationships, you know, like with people who you've never spoken to before in those positions. Mm. What about you?
2: Yeah, agreed.
0: Um, and where
2: that isn't possible, if they're not going to be at a conference, mm. or etc., I often find, actually, now contacting people through social media, Mm. not not ringing their mobile phone, not calling their office phone, not emailing their work Mm. email, Facebooking or Mm -hmm. Twitter. Uh, You've sort of somehow, you've stepped a little way away from their formal role. Mm. And I actually find I get a lot more response that way. Um, But meeting people, you know, you just... Get them off the phone as soon as possible. Just say, look, you know, we need to talk about this in person. Absolutely. Not on the phone. When it comes to the exchange of documents, say, or information, it is so, it's is so—it's really tricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really tricky because everything really leaves a, f- a footprint almost um, unless, you know, you have a USB slid under your door at a hotel yeah. stick, which has happened before. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, ghost account, ghost Gmail accounts set those up where... Nothing's ever actually sent, you're just writing each other drafts and, and then leaving the, the account mm-hmm. um, at an external, go to a library and do that. Um, if you really need to stay away, don't take your mobile phone with you. Um, that's what, yeah, I, I seem to do. But I think contacting outside of not using their work phones and addresses is beneficial.
0: Yeah, paper documents as well, and snail mail. Yeah, letters. Just like, just like if you, you know, if, if you've got a source who's super nervous about a paper trail, yeah. and they've got documents say on a computer somewhere, and they don't want to like print that out because that leaves a digital trail yeah. or anything like that, they can like take photographs on their phone of oh, the yeah, screen, right. print out those photographs, post them to you in a brown envelope from some random part of the country yeah. away from where they normally are, and that's like almost undetectable. That's a good one. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, uh, Question here. Just as you're both investigative journalists from traditional and new media, I'd like to see um, what kind of resources they're giving you for investigative journalism at BuzzFeed One, but also in terms of the future of investigative journalism. In terms of what journalism, oh, sorry, journalists should be doing and what newsrooms should be investing in, should journalists start becoming a bit of a jack of all trades on the data sides of things? Or is it important to now have dedicated data people and software engineers and then you'll traditional journalists who do all the legwork, how's that gonna work?
0: Go for it. So in terms of resources at Buzzfeed, um, we are really lucky and really well resourced. Um, I mean, so far I've never had a reporting trip you know, denied. I've never, I don't think I've ever had a request for any resource denied so far, um, which is kind of amazing, and like, I'm so used to being part of a newspaper with a massively shrinking budget and everything being cut, and so it's, it's really, really refreshing, and we're very, very lucky. Um, yeah, um, I think it's, sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry. Can you just remind me of the second part of the question?
1: <laughs> um, the part about should journalists now become a jack of all that's trades? It, and right, yes, sorry.
0: Um, so I think, um, actually, I, I think not. I mean, some people are natural all-rounders, and that's amazing if you can do that, um, but I don't think you need to be. And so, for example, with the tennis story, if I tried to turn my hand to data mm. journalism, you know, I'd be able to do some kind of crappy little, like, Excel spreadsheet or something. But well, you just pull do. up Ryan Gosling. Exactly. Mm. That's what, which is, and there's a, there's a place for that. Um, mm. But I wouldn't be able to do anything on the scale that John can do, because John is a genius at that, and that's his whole thing, and he just is totally passionate about it and spends all of his life thinking about that and reading statistics journals, which I'm just never going to do. And, like, that's how he you know, saw this in the first place. Um, but equally, I, my particular thing is sort of going out and meeting people and, and mm. persuading them to talk to me. And that's kind of what that wouldn't be John's thing. Wouldn't be so much John's thing, no. And, and that's what I spend all of my time sort of thinking about and obsessing about and, you know, preoccupied with. So I think it, I, I'm actually more into having people who just get really, really good at their particular thing. Mm, mm. I think, what about you? I agree. Uh, I, look, I don't
2: think we can become... Yes, jack of all trades, you, do, you, you need to have diverse skills, I think. now Journalists, you do. But, you know, I could never do what, what John does and I don't think anyone at Four Corners, say, I can only speak to my program, pardon me, could do that. So what we are tending to do now, say, at Four Corners, is is engaging people with specialist skills to work on specific programs when we can see that there is a... A, a skill gap mm. where, and we're not going to do the best job if we don't have someone to fill that. So I think, yeah, I think now newsrooms should be tailoring employees and their skills to certain stories rather than, you know, a, a team working on something where the team won't be able to do it. But, sorry, question at the front, yep. Well, further on that, and I don't know if there's a mic coming, so I'll just, I'll talk we'll Or just wait for the mic, I think, because they, we need to hear the questions, pardon I had a question, actually. But just down that. Sorry. Cheers. Sorry, um, we'll get to you second. Pardon. <laughs> Third. We heard earlier this week on a panel uh, a couple of people talking about uh, the path to becoming an investigative journalism is possibly harder now. Um, you know, one, there's, there's less resources, but two, a lot of journalists just don't have the time. What would you say to journalists who are keen to broaden their investigative skills to do more investigative journalism work, but perhaps aren't afforded the time in the newsroom? Um, you know, how, how could they try and find time or make time or convince the editors to give them time? Mm. We've got, you've almost answered your question there in, in that you need to convince your editors to give you some time and I think if you're, look, if you're unsuccessful at, at that, often, you know, I remember when I started out, I'm not sure about you, Heidi, but I was doing a lot of work just in my, f- mm. my free time on the weekend. I was just doing my own thing and then proving to my superiors that I do have something, that I could do something. What, what do you think? It's hard starting out though it is.
0: I mean, absolutely, and that's mm. definitely how I started out. Um, I think, I mean, obviously trying to wangle yourself into a position where you get to be on an investigations team in some way is great. And like, that's kind of the best thing to do. Because I do think that time is, I always say this, like time is really the only superpower of investigative journalism. It's mm. like, and knowing how to use the time um, a lot of people get freaked out by that much time and then kind of stall and you have to be ambitious about your use of time but I also think to some extent like investigative journalism is a bit of a thought experiment, it's kind of like if you imagine, if you take a story and you imagine if I had a year, what could I achieve how big could this be and is it feasible that within a year I'd be able to really blow this thing wide open and like prove that Seth Blatter definitely took a bribe or you know, prove that World Tennis definitely knew there was a fixing and did nothing about it um, and actually you Like, the year that you spend on it, it's not like, you know, you spend the entire year investigating Mm. it. It's just more that those things are gradual. So, like, you spend a long time waiting for your source to come back to you with documents. They freak out. They disappear for six months. Then they reemerge. Like, all that stuff happens. And you can be doing that kind of on the side. And maybe if you're trying to do another job, it's going to take you two years, not one. Um, but if you're just constantly chipping away at that story over time you know mm. in your lunch break in your evenings whenever you get a spare moment like rather than checking Facebook or whatever at work when things are quiet just like you know think I'm gonna send another email to a couple of people who might know yeah, about this and just throw out loads of lines and see what you get I do think it's possible to, to make mm. progress that way and then once you've got a bit of a foothold if you do that for like six months once you can actually go to your boss and say listen I've been working in my own time on this project and I've got this source who's just told me there's this massive whitewash and I I think there are some documents and if I spent some time I might get them you know you're much more likely mm.
2: to get have a kernel
0: yeah to present yeah but ta- just just on this because that's
2: a really good question the idea of time and and investigative journalism investigative investigative journalism it's a hard word it doesn't it it doesn't have to take a year no uh, Four corners we're on a turnaround schedule of it can range from six to ten weeks and that's what, say, Don Dale was, and look how that exploded around the world. That wasn't a year, but, you know, we work like crazy. But you can really achieve something in, in, in a relatively, you know, tight period of time. Um, and, and I think Heidi touched on it too, when you just answered then, in terms of trying to get the, the time and support from your superiors, uh, is come up with ideas, come up with story ideas constantly. I mean, if someone came to Four Corners, you, you came to Four Corners with a, a, a great idea, can I come and work on it with you? And you had, you know, a couple of people to talk to and some notes. I mean, yeah. you'll you'll get in the door quicker. Just keep coming up with ideas. It's daunting, but that's how you get in. Um, now, there was a question, a third that I take up the back. or already have a microphone. Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, this is probably a bit of a rabbit hole, but in relation to this story, um, what do you think is going on with the betting companies? I mean, they're full of failed mathematicians like myself. So. Why do you think it is that they haven't noticed these patterns and have done something about it? Because it it seems to me odd that they're allowing these bets. They're making them lose money at the end of the day.
0: Do you know what the Bonferroni correction is? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) You do, don't you? You know. (laughs) Amazing. I think um, basically the gambling industry is really furious, um, it, by and large, um, to speak for the entire industry, about um, the way that world tennis is dealing with this. We spoke to so many people within the industry who are just kind of tearing their hair out about the fact that they're constantly flagging up these suspicious matches to world tennis and it's being ignored. Um, and the way that the Tennis Integrity Unit has been set up is that they're They're supposed to... They have these kind of memorandums of understanding with the gambling houses where when they see suspicious matches, they send a report to the Tennis Integrity Unit and then the TRU is supposed to investigate and then what's actually happening is they're just sort of sitting on it all and nothing's happening. Yeah,
1: I guess I'm wondering why they don't just adjust the odds, but that's probably a very technical discussion.
0: Oh, well they don't adjust the odds? Yeah, um, because
1: they know that there's something going on with that player, so why wouldn't they just adjust the odds? It's not that... Anyway, it's just a... Interesting observation.
0: That may be something that they do. I don't know whether they do that or not, actually. Um, But I suppose they have to be... I mean, I know that what they often do is they, they have... So there's, like, a, uh, an organisation called the European Sports Security Association. Um, they monitor the markets for suspicious betting, and when more than one of their members flag up a match and say there's a really strange odds movement, they will kind of send around a notice so that people can suspend the market on that map. So they definitely do that. But whether they adjust the odds, I don't know, I'm afraid. Okay.
1: Thank you.
2: OK.
0: I think we're getting close to...
2: I saw 10 minutes a few minutes ago, so we'll try and jam in a few more. Okay, we have a microphone question here,
0: yes? Um, thank you both for your great work, and both of you are international breaking stories, and I'm wondering if you can, I'm from community radio, and so I'm wondering if you can sort of ballpark um, the kind of financial investments that go into these sort of investigations, and also how your, the organizations that you work with determine the return on investment, if it was a success for them in terms of their business, obviously from a journalistic standpoint the reputation values there, but in, in terms of in internal operations. Do you have any insight on that?
1: I'll
2: um, start. Well, I'm in a, obviously a difficult position for me to answer that because I work for the ABC, which is a, the government uh, broadcaster. Uh, we aren't driven by profit. Um, we're taxpayer-funded. So our model isn't about return on investment. Um, it's really about just good journalism and shining a light. Uh, so thankfully we aren't driven by those sorts of you know, commercial demands or interests. Um, so I, I, I can't put a value, I, I can't really answer that. But Heidi?
0: Um, feed? So, I mean, it really, really varies project to project. But in, I mean, the, the financial investment for the actual story itself, I mean, on something like tennis, it's a few airfares and hotel bills going around talking to people around the world. Um, and then it's our salaries, really. And it's, you know, it's not very much more than, and a little bit of kind of taking people out for dinner and stuff. But it's not, like, there's not a huge amount more than that. With some, you know, some projects that I'm, you know, working on and have worked on, you need to kind of buy some super expensive piece of, like, forensic software or something like that to review documents. And maybe that costs you, you know, I mean, that can it can cost you a lot of money. It can cost you potentially tens of thousands of, of pounds. Um, so that... It, Sometimes costs a lot. I think I think you have to make a judgment with any story about um, whether it's worth the investment. But I've never, I'm literally never in, in my career, um, had to even consider what sort of commercial return we'd get for a story. The calculation is always about how big is the story going to be, and is it going to justify the amount of money that we're going to spend on it? Basically, is mm. it going to get loads of traction, have impact, and widely read
2: around the world and ours is is it in the public interest and for the public benefit yes Yes. then we proceed
0: yeah Yeah. and and absolutely that too Um. So, yeah, I think, um, I, think it, I think it does really, really vary. But the, the thing that you do need a lot of money for and you need a lot of financial backing for is the potential legal ramifications. Yes. That's why the kind of dream of peeling off and setting up your own little kind of, like, investigations unit somewhere out there in the world is never going to work because you, you need a big organisation behind you who can mm. potentially fund a multi-million pound lawsuit. Um, and that's happened to me twice, you know. And yeah. we won both times, thankfully, but we had to foot, you know, millions of pounds worth of legal bills before we ultimately won and got the money back. Um, before I mean, before you broadcast or publish, you you're already
2: you've had a gazillion meetings usually with the, we, we do with the, our legal team yep. about all all the potential at w- where we could end up in court. Um, so yes, that's yeah. a, actually a very good point. It's a huge consideration to legal the costs. Um, but we should move on to another question. Who has it, we have a mic here, middle? Or does someone already have a mic?
0: Yep. Uh, can I ask a question, please? At the yeah, back? sure. I um, it's a question for um, Heidi. Um, thank you very much for your insights, first of all. I'm back here, by the way. Um, oh, I where guess are you? Yeah, oh, here, here I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> right at the back. Um, it's. Um, have you found the perception of the company, BuzzFeed, changed somewhat in terms of there being a, a, an audience shift uh, in, in, in perception since having released investigative material into the media sphere, having, uh, you know, previously been known for sort of entertainment, light to news, and, of course, cats and things like that. Have you have you seen a an, an audience... Uh, the, ..the perception of the audience change, as it were? Just so you know, we've had a call of two minutes. Two minutes, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's kind of a big part of my job, as well, is to try, really try to change that and to kind of get us... Um, you know, establish us a reputation as a a news company that breaks big stories, um, as well as doing all the kind of foreign journalism that we do and and all the entertainment stuff too. Um, And definitely, in the UK, um, perception has changed hugely. And you know it used to be that whenever we published an investigation, people would be like, wow, BuzzFeed's done an investigation. It's actually like not terrible, weird. Um, and that would be the kind of response. And now it's, got, it's just much more like another great investigation from BuzzFeed mm. kind of thing. So people are definitely starting to take us seriously, which is great. Do you
2: think we have time for one more? One more, yes, one more question. To the patient gent in the orange shirt. Thank you. Um, my question is a slight variation on the other one: was when Buzzfeed started doing investigations, um, how hard was it to persuade potential sources that you're actually doing serious news, and and you know how did you actually bring people along with you?
0: It's yeah. It was you know it was. A bit challenging. You kind of, there's quite a lot of people to begin with around the office kind of going, yeah, B, U, Z, Z, like, yeah, we're, a, we're an online media company, yeah, kind of thing. And, um, and then you just go, like, do you have kids? Just ask your kids. And then they come back going, like, oh my God, my daughter loves you. She says, I have to talk to you. Um, that, like, that happens all the time. It definitely helps to have a track record as an investigative journalist, so you can say, look, you know, basically, look, here's my work on FIFA, here's my work on other things. You know, this will be the same sort of project, Um, and. That, that helps a lot, um, and you know, Buzzfeed has really hired a lot of people with a, an established reputation for doing investigative work, or f- you know, foreign work, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, but it, no, it definitely, it definitely took some time, and that's also something that's really changing. Um, and we're able increasingly to point to previous work at Buzzfeed and say, look, you know, look what we did with tennis, look what we did with our money laundering investigation, and yeah, that helps too. But it's definitely part of the kind of ongoing project. Do you point, Heidi?
2: Do you point people to um, your? First seven jobs. Uh,
0: first. <laughs> it really made me laugh.
2: If you pop onto Heidi's um, Twitter uh, account, there's a, there's this you know, first seven jobs trend that's going on at the moment. You were a you had a
0: receptionist, a
2: parking attendant.
0: Ca- oh, I was a uh, Christmas
2: I, tree seller.
0: Yeah, Christmas tree seller. Yeah. I was sold recumbent bikes in the park. Homeless sh-
2: shelter manager.
0: Yeah. I'm doing pretty good. Very good, yeah, yeah, good, good memory. yeah. I can't remember the others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used to sell double glazing on the phone as well. Oh, like very cold good. Cooler. Yes, cold yeah. caller, yes. <laughs>
2: pretty grim. Oh, great. Well, look, um, I think we're out of time. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and thank you, Heidi. <laughs> Thanks a lot.
1: You've been listening to Heidi Blake of BuzzFeed and Caro meldrum Hannah in a special edition of the Walkley Talks podcast, Conversations from Storyology. If you like this stuff, you should really sign up to the Walkley's newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. Please rate our podcast on iTunes and consider giving us a few dollars at walkleys.com slash donate. Walkley Talks is produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Till next time.